You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown and former U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers joined the Washington Post to discuss why they believe global collaboration is necessary to combat the coronavirus pandemic. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post. This morning on Washington Post Live, we are going to have another discussion of the issues facing the U.S. and global economy. We're lucky to have two experts in in these stories of economic difficulty and recovery. First, uh, former Prime Minister of Great Britain, Gordon Brown, who was Prime Minister during the Great Recession of 2008-2009 and launched major uh, bailout and stimulus programs uh, in that crisis. And uh, with him, uh, Larry Summers, the uh, former chairman of the National Economic Council during that same Great Recession uh, under Barack Obama, uh, who fashioned the programs in 2009 that sought the recovery uh, of the economy. Before that, Larry was our, our Treasury Secretary under the Clinton administration. So gentlemen, welcome to both of you. I want to begin by asking you to talk about a kind of manifesto that you produced for the Washington Post in April. The headline was, National Governments Have Gone Big. The IMF and World Bank Need to Do the Same. In other words, it was a call for international action and cooperation. Gordon, maybe you could begin by explaining why you think this is so crucial and how we can overcome the obstacles to it in a period where people, if anything, are behaving in a more nationalistic way than international. Well, well, David, it's a real pleasure to be with you and also to be with Larry, who I've had the privilege of working with over many, many years, and particularly during the global financial recession. Uh, I remember April 2009, when we brought together the G20 in London, and we had a dinner the night before the major meeting. And I remember my first words at that dinner. I reminded them of what Winston Churchill had said about the protectionist response in the 1930s. And he had said that people had been resolved to be a resolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, and all powerful for impotence. Uh, And to add to that, Keynes had said that the 30s had shown that politics was the survival of the unfittest. And I was determined that we would not repeat what had happened in the 1930s when nations withdrew withdrew into the national silos, International cooperation became impossible, protectionism, and then everything that we now know resulted uh, from that. And yet, here in 2020, we have uh, a global medical emergency. And of course, we cannot solve the global economic emergency until we make progress in the medical emergency. But we do not have either in health cooperation or in economic cooperation, the level of collaboration that is essential if we're going to either solve the problem of vaccines and the capacity to deliver medical equipment, but also uh, the problems that we face in the economy being resolved. And so we are at the point at which we are dealing with rescue. We are not even at the point yet of recovery, but there is no sense that the G20 or the international community is going to come together in the way it did in 2009 And that means that we will have an inadequate response, both medically and economically. And that is what's got to change. And Larry and I, and uh, I I do attribute many of these ideas to Larry, we have set down some of the measures that need to be taken, uh, but they have to be taken urgently. We're not talking about 
months and years, we're talking about weeks and days when I think the international community has got to act. And Larry, let me ask you if you'd continue with this in explaining uh, just where uh, you think the global uh, cooperation agenda sh should go. We have a G20 meeting coming up in the fall. What should be on the agenda for that meeting and for right now? History will uh, judge us. Uh, there is a sense, if you look at stock markets, that maybe things are coming back and everything's going to be okay. If you look at economic statistics, uh, that sense is not fortified. If you look at what's happening in the emerging markets in the developing world, uh, one sees huge things uh, to uh, cause for concern. Uh, countries where uh, you can recommend washing uh, your hands, but people do not have access to uh, running water. You can recommend quarantining, but people do not have uh, separate uh, space. You can recommend fiscal expansion, but governments don't have uh, the room. You can rec recommend easy money, but the result will be a catastrophe for uh, the local currency. And that's why a global response is necessary. <clears throat> what are some of the elements of that global response? Assuring an adequate flow of credit so that people can, countries can borrow to get themselves through the extraordinary expenses and extraordinary deficits that are going to take place right now. Why should the richest be able to borrow as the United States is on an inordinate scale and those who are even more in need, those with even less reserves, uh, be unable uh, to borrow? So it's, it's more resources from the World Bank. It's the expansion of the financial system known as special drawing rights that enables uh, more liquidity to be available to uh, all countries. It's critically a framework for addressing what would otherwise be hugely punitive uh, debts. Um, and it's support for collaboration because viruses don't know about immigration rules. Viruses don't know about uh, international uh, boundaries. These are the crucial elements if we're to maximize the prospect uh, for a relatively successful outcome. And while the Bank of England or the Fed have acted on an enormous scale, while the US government has acted on enormous scale, as have many European uh, countries, there has been nothing that feels strongly abnormal yet uh, from, the from the international community. And that's not the failure of the leadership of the IMF or the Bank of International Settlements. That's the failure of the countries that control those institutions. And of course, the country that has led in the past in responding to international crises is the United States. And we have rejected the very idea of an international community, and that I think will prove to have been a grave mistake, unless it's reversed. Yeah, yeah. David, I think yes, Larry's absolutely, absolutely right about this. I mean, it used to be said of the Habsburg monarchs in the 18th century, they would never learn by the mistakes. 
and we should have learned by the mistakes of the past. This will go down as one of the greatest global policy mistakes uh, of our generation and perhaps longer. Because on health, we have not coordinated our activities to produce the vaccine, to mass manufacture it, to equitably, equitably distribute it, not sufficiently. We have not coordinated the supply of medical equipment in the way we should have, so people are competing for a limited supply of medical goods when we should be working together to coordinate an increase in capacity. And we're not helping the poorest countries uh, because they will be the second wave of the disease that will come into America and into Europe if we do not help them and stall the disease in these countries. And then when it comes to the economy, I think three points are absolutely vital and Larry's uh, covered uh, two of them. Uh, the first is there is no proper global financial safety net at the moment. And it's the responsibilities, as Larry says, of the shareholders of the IMF, not the management, the shareholders, to make that safety net uh, available. They've talked about two and a half emerging markets in developing countries, and there's simply not that money being made available. We've got the second issue, which is uh, the creation of an international money through the special drawing rights, and that could be done tomorrow, if particularly America agreed to do it. I think other countries want to do it. And then the third is debt relief. And as Larry has said, the most immediate thing you can do is relieve those countries that are paying debt interest payments and debt servicing uh, so that they can actually use that money for health and for the social safety net. Now, at the moment, we've released, I think, about 20, 20 billion. But we're talking really about 80 or so billion over the next year uh, and 2021. And if that sort of money was released, at least it would be a start to help some of the poorest countries prepare for what is a wave uh, that is coming towards them. Uh, and they are later in being uh, uh, hit by this disease. But as you can see, the numbers of disease uh, carriers around the world is still increasing every day. It may be falling in some countries, particularly in Europe and America, but it is rising still in the rest of the world. And we've got to do something about that. Let me, Larry, if let I me. could just add one point. Um, this is not a, a moral, primarily or only a moral issue of doing right by poor people in poor countries. This is forward defense of our national security interests, forward defense of our national security interest in prosperity at a time when the emerging markets now represent more than half of the global economy forward defense of our national security in terms of health, where second waves will inevitably make their way to our shores and affect our citizens, and forward defense of our security interests in terms of avoiding the kind of populist authoritarian political wave that history shows can do uh, so much uh, damage. People may think that it's only in uh, it's it's only we, we it, what's happening in our countries that we should focus on. There was a time a little more than a century ago when many people thought the Balkans were a long way away. That proved to be a cataclysmic uh, error, and focusing only at home will be a moral error. Yes but a fundamental national security error as well for 
uh, the countries of the industrialized world. I think Sorry, the point, David, David, if I could just add, if anything is right for countries to work together, it's the control of infectious diseases. If you look back historically, it was in 1851 that the first international conference was held to deal with cholera at that time. And then, of course, all the other diseases. So there is a series of international actions, some of them led by America over the last 100 years, that have put uh, the control of infectious diseases and global health policy on the agenda. And as Larry says, this is the national interest being protected in each country by making sure that the disease does not come back to hit you in a second, third or fourth wave. And to act locally or to protect yourself locally, you need to act globally. And I think when I saw an opinion poll by Pew Research in America, it showed that the American people, if not some of the leaders, but the American people understood that it was necessary to work together internationally to control an infectious disease to protect yourself at home. So I want to come back to, to Larry on the practical problems associated with the call that you're making. President Trump was elected in 2016 in part uh, in public uh, re reaction to, reaction against the kind of globalization that the Obama administration had, had, uh, had stood for. Uh, and that uh, sense of nationalism is very much part of his policies. And we see that it's it's spread increasingly in in Europe as as well. So I, I want to ask you, you're uh, somebody who who talks to Vice President Joe Biden, the uh, presumptive Democratic nominee. What advice would you give him or any Democrat to make the case for these international uh, cooperative policies at a time when public sentiment seems quite resistant? Let me say I'm one of many, many people um, who's talked to, who talks to the Biden campaign occasionally. So I'm gonna only speak uh, for myself uh, here. Uh, look, I think we need to make global concerns our, a focus of some of our efforts, but concerns that are tangible and real for regular Americans. We shouldn't be using huge amounts of U.S. political capital to establish a 100-year trademark on Mickey Mouse for the benefits of the shareholders of uh, one company. We should be using that political capital to make sure that whatever their original nationality, IT companies don't escape taxes globally by saying they've located themselves in uh, cyberspace. We should be focusing uh, cooperation on making sure that we're not victims in international trade of countries that are prepared to exploit their workers by exposing them to disease in ways that we're not prepared uh, to. So it's not that we shouldn't be engaged with other countries. It's that we need to be engaged with other countries for the benefits of the people who spend time in Detroit rather than the people who spend time in uh, Davos. And I think there was uh, a tendency over many, many years in the United States to allow the issues around globalization to be uh, the concerns of Americans who took their uh, vacations in Tuscany 
rather than uh, Americans who took their vacations in Tennessee. And if we can anchor the case for internationalism in middle-class uh, interests, I think we can build the kind of strong support that American leadership has had in the past. But if it's so banks can have uh, branches, so pharma can have uh, patents, and uh, technology com and technology companies can have tax avoidance, it's not going to work. Gordon, if I could ask you another of the difficult uh, uh, questions associated with, with this. At this time, it seems as if the most powerful voice uh, from a nation state calling for international cooperation, uh, calling for work through the WHO and other institutions is not the United States, historically the champion of these institutions, but China. And I want to ask you whether you think this may be uh, China's moment to be the advocate of the kind of international cooperation that you and Larry have talked about. And if so, what are the dangers of that? I, I think people are always going to look to America in the immediate future, in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, they're going to look to America to take a lead in global cooperation. Look, I, I can see why people in America and Europe uh, are hostile to globalization. I mean, I, I chaired an INET meeting a few years ago and there was a demonstration outside and there was a poster that said, worldwide campaign against globalization. And you can see that lots of people feel they have not benefited from it. They feel that uh, they've lost jobs. They feel the living standards have uh, not risen. Uh, they feel that uh, uh, China and other countries are taking industries uh, from them. We have got to show that there are areas where cooperation can actually make a difference. Uh, President Trump's America first nationalism cannot deal with a pandemic because it's a global problem that he cannot uh, see as being solved other than by each country doing it on their own. And that's not really possible. Uh, climate change, uh, that is something that an American first or any kind of nationalism cannot solve without some form of international cooperation. Financial stability cannot be solved by people simply acting on their own. You've got to have some form of cooperation to deal with global financial uh, trends and financial practices. And if you go right through the issues that we've got to deal with, nuclear proliferation, cyber uh, security, uh, you've got to think about how individual nationalist positions cannot really cope with the complexity, the sophistication, and of course the interdependence of the economies that we're, we're actually dealing with now. Now, I don't think uh, China has the, the, the answers uh, either. And I think we're in danger of moving to one world, two systems if we don't watch. Uh, but China is talking the language as the president did at Davos of uh, international cooperation. Uh, Europe does want to cooperate with other countries in doing this. All the countries of Europe want to cooperate with the rest of the world. Africa wants that level of cooperation. And I think we are looking to America to, to realize that not uh, all of its public is against international cooperation where these issues can be proven to be in the direct interests of the individual communities of these countries. Now, I think we can look at China and what's going to happen, but I think people will continue to look to America for that kind of leadership. Larry, before we leave the issue of China, I just want to put the question to you. As, as the world looks uh, at 
these two great powers during the the global pa pandemic that's that's been so shattering for for the world what judgments do you think people are forming about the relative merits of the two systems chinese uh, top-down authoritarian government and american disorganized uh, semi-federalist uh, uh, government what, what how, how does that strike people do you think around the world as they uh, I met uh, President Xi. Uh, Larry, you go first. Yeah. I, I think it is a mistake. It's a mistake the United States has made before to um, overestimate an apparently disciplined, um, engineering-oriented, driving rival. We did all kinds of things in the wake of Sputnik that actually contributed to the Cuban Missile Crisis and some very serious threats to our national security. In retrospect, the hysteria that the United States had surrounding Japan um, in the late 1980s looks vaguely ridiculous and had a set of costs at that time. I don't think we can minimize the Chinese threat, which unlike uh, Japan or Russia, is in both the economic and the security realm. But at the same time, uh, I think it would be a grave mistake to for anyone to suppose that they have it all figured out. Uh, they made some very serious mistakes that a more open society would not have made at the very early moments of uh, this pandemic. They have had a need to increase domestically the level of repression. That's because of questions um, and challenges that the Communist Party faces uh, in uh, China. If you ask how many deep allies does China have between North Korea, besides North Korea, if you contrast the quality of relations between the United States and, and Mexico and Canada with uh, the quality of relations that China has with the countries in its neighborhood, there is uh, no, there's no comparison. So yes, I think that what the United States and China decide to do together or not decide to do together is going to be a hinge of history. But I think that anyone who supposes that they have it all figured out is making a grave mistake. You know, the word people use a lot now as they talk about supply, supply chains and the like is resilience. And the remarkable thing about the United States is its enormous resilience, whether it's Jimmy Carter's uh, missile gap, uh, malaise, or whether it is Patrick Henry saying 12 years in that the spirit of the revolution was already being lost. The defining and so positive feature of US history is Americans' capacity to become alarmed and then get their stride uh, back. And yes, this is not an easy moment, but I think it's gonna happen again and I don't think authoritarian societies have that kind of resilience. I think if anything, uh, David, it's the communitarian model of um, society rather than the authoritarian 
that it's shown itself to be most resilient in this crisis, where people can find a common cause and common spirit and can work together. And if you look like around some of the countries of the world, that's why they've managed uh, to be so successful in mobilizing public support uh, to deal with the virus uh, early on. But you know, when you look at um, China, America can either cooperate, confront, or contain. I mean, these are the, really the three uh, options. When I met uh, uh, President Xi, and I was gonna say this a few minutes ago, he said to me, uh, the last time I met him, he said, we have two um, uh, traps that we've got to avoid. China has got to avoid the middle income trap. And you've got to understand, I think, that economic success is how this regime will be judged by its citizens. Uh, and they are determined uh, to be a middle income uh, country that becomes a high income country as soon as possible. And then he said, we've got to avoid the Thucydides trap. And of course, the Thucydides trap is uh, a rising power taking on the established power. And he said that he was determined not to do that. Now, you can take that as complete rhetoric. But it seems to me that what has sadly happened in the last few months is that what started off as a trade dispute, it could have been a currency dispute as well. Uh, perhaps there is also a major dispute you cannot avoid about technology and about access to technology and about counterfeit technology. But it's now about security. It will soon be about human rights. It's about nuclear weapons. It's about the South China Sea. And we are getting to a stage uh, where almost every single issue is an issue of contention between China and America. And it seems to me that it depends on good leadership to try to diffuse some of these issues, to get back to the heart of the problems that uh, divide the two countries and see what to, can, can be done. And the alternative, as I said earlier on, is if we do nothing, we will end up with one world, two systems, even a splinter net, uh, as Larry uh, talked about previously. And we have got to try to do something uh, about avoiding this one world, two systems, which seems to me to be one of the most likely outcomes of the tensions between these two countries. So, gentlemen, we, we have less than uh, uh, four minutes left. Uh, uh, I want to close and just ask you for very brief comments. Uh, General Petraeus famously asked on the way to Baghdad in 2003, tell me how this ends. Um, haunting question. Uh, in the middle of this great uh, pandemic, unlike anything we've really seen since World War II, give us a thought, each of you, please, about how the world will be different after this is over. Larry? I think we will understand that our security depends more on our ability to cooperate with other countries to solve common problems than it does, as it has for the last thousand years, on maintaining a balance of power. And I think this will be an impetus to uh, notions of uh, international community. Ironically, it will mean both more emphasis on international community and more emphasis on uh, resilience. Uh, we're gonna move from a just-in-time world to a just-in-case world. Gordon, tell me, tell me how this ends. <laughs> I agree with what Larry's saying on both these accounts. So look, America in a unipolar age acted multilaterally. Now we're in a multipolar age. It's important that America does not continue to act unilaterally. And Larry's obviously right that uh, power exercise with ours, with others, is going to be the way forward. I do think the social contract is going to change in just about every country. 
I think people are more aware of the risks that they face, whether it's pandemics or unemployment or insecurity. And I think they're going to demand governments that provide a social contract with more security for them. It will change the balance between markets and the states. It will change the balance between the private and public sector. And I do hope that out of this uh, a narrow, selfish individualism, which has often characterized the way we see our age, uh, becomes more a culture of generosity and respect uh, for others. And uh, in this crisis, you've seen some remarkable acts of courage and selflessness on the part of so many people. And I think our society uh, must find a better way of honoring those people who are low paid workers, who are in day to day contact with the public, who are putting themselves at risk to save lives. Uh, and I think perhaps there will be a, a shift in our society to recognizing the contribution that uh, so many people who have been undervalued and underpaid actually make. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a chance this morning to listen to two of the smartest people in the world in my book, uh, and usefully, uh, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, uh, former Treasury T Secretary uh, Larry Summers have helped us get out of thinking about the immediate, uh, local, uh, tomorrow concerns uh, that weigh so heavily on us and helped us, helped us to think about the, 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 the larger issues of international cooperation. I want to thank both of them in, very much for joining us this morning. I want to remind our viewers that we have a doubleheader coming up today. My colleague, Karen Tumulty, will be interviewing uh, at one o'clock today, Simone Sanders, who's a top advisor to the Biden campaign, author of a new book, No, You Shut Up, a uh, chance uh, with, for Karen to talk politics with somebody in the middle of this campaign. Again, thanks to uh, Gordon Brown and Larry Summers, and thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.